Let's make a start here. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. <coughs> oh, at verse 4. All right, this is a well-known, very important uh, text. It's often referred to as the Shema um, because Shema is the word here. It's the first word of the verse. And in many ways, what we have in verse number four is the essence of true biblical religion, not just for Old Testament, but for New Testament as well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we come with thanksgiving for the revelation of thyself that thou hast given to us in thy word. Confess, Lord, that thou art not the figment of our imagination. Thou art not just the product of theological dogma or definition. But we know thee as thou hast revealed thyself to us. Lord, let us indeed be impressed, overwhelmed with who thou art and what our obligations are to thee because of who thou art. So guide our thoughts in these moments today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I thought we would just spend a little time here uh, today on reflecting on the greatest of the commandments. I refer to this after the reading of the law today summary of the law. Remember when the Lord Jesus was asked on more than one occasion what the greatest commandment was, he invariably came to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Matthew's declaration of that answer, uh, it begins at verse number 5. You are to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, and that's good. But in Mark's gospel, Christ does not begin with a commandment. He begins with the proposition of the truth. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He begins with that propositional declaration. And then on the basis of that theological declaration, he then gives the imperative. Now, my guess is that I'm not going to have time today, given the fact that time is always my enemy, uh, to deal with all of these issues on the outline. But... Uh, you can work this through yourself. It goes really through the entirety of chapter uh, 6. The greatest of the commandments. But it ought to impress us, if this indeed is the greatest of the commandments, 
then it also defines for us what the greatest of sins are. Not to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our being. So let me just make some general comments on this most important uh, text. First of all, the commandment itself. And we'll start here at verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord. And without getting into all the technicalities of the grammar, this is not simply just a future tense, but uh, it is the most forceful way Uh, the most forceful way that in Hebrew you can express an imperative idea. I would translate it this way. You must love the Lord your God. You must. So this is not optional. This is not just a suggestion. It is a very forceful imperative, a very forceful command. And you must love the Lord thy God. It's amazing in many ways that it's a command. At least particularly the way that we tend to think of love. Love is oftentimes something that just, it just happens. It just happens. And you can't help yourself. Uh, I've already given a couple personal illustrations. I, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I don't get out much, so personal stuff is all I know. Uh, if I can have one more, all right, personal illustration. Uh, I remember the day when I first saw Sander, and something happened when I saw her, right? I can't explain it. I can't. Something happened right about there, and it was this little palpitation, right? Uh, And it wasn't long. It wasn't long before I fell in love. Yeah, Uh, I'm not very, usually a romantic person, but hey, we're we're coming up to it here pretty soon, our 50th anniversary, yeah. Uh, I remember that because she keeps telling me that. Uh, (laughs) But I, I fell in love. I couldn't help it, right? It just happened. It just happened. But nobody falls in love with God, right? You don't fall in love with God. We, there's nothing about God, right? In our natural conditions, in our natural state, there's nothing about God that would cause us to fall in love with him. We can only love him because he first loved us, right? We love him because he first loved us. But the idea of love, we talked a little bit about the opposite of this in the message today, to hate is not so much an emotional term, but rather hate is a volitional term, to reject. Well, if hate is to reject, then love is to choose, right? Uh, and it's primarily a volitional term. Uh, people have problems sometimes with what Malachi uh, says what the Lord says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Oh, how could God hate? And, and putting all this emotional stuff. No, it's a volitional term. Jacob have I chosen and Esau have I rejected. Right? Uh, so it's a volitional term. 
And to love the Lord, therefore, becomes obedience, all right? It's not just kind of, and here's where people beat themselves up sometimes. Uh, we beat ourselves up sometimes because we, we know we're to love the Lord uh, as the greatest of all the commandments, but we don't always feel it, yeah? We don't always feel it, uh, whatever it's supposed to feel like. Uh, and we start to beat ourselves up then sometimes because we're, oh man, am I loving something else too much? Am I loving this? And we start to play this funny game of trying to make sure that we love God first, we love God more, and we, we love, and, and so with a measure then our love, can, can, I love, can I love my wife too much? Well, I gotta be careful here, right? I, I, don't, I don't wanna love her too much lest that interferes with my love of God. It's foolishness. Right? That's foolishness. We are to love our wives for, for all that we can do, right? But we're to love God for who he is. It's a choice. So it's not just a matter of setting our priorities. It's not just a matter even of, uh, of degrees. It's a matter of choice. I, 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 I don't want to spend too much time here, but uh, you know, we, how, how do we worship? Right? What, what does it mean to worship? Worship is to ascribe value to something, if I take that word transparently. Worship is to ascribe value to something. And we are to worship the Lord only. Only God is worthy, deserves our worship. It's only God then that we ascribe that value to. But everything has value. Right? I said today that we're all image bearers. Uh, and as image bearers of God, we all have a value that God has infused uh, in our very being, but as we look at as we look at th the nature of worth, right? There, there's those we, we can talk about intrinsic worth, and we can talk about instrumental worth, intrinsic worth, and instrumental worth. Something that is intrinsic is inherent, right? Uh, instrumental is whatever serves a particular purpose, and, and here's where we can. I, I think, see, the primary, I, I thought of this one day. I, I had a meeting in Clearwater. This is when I was still living in Carolina. And got thinking about this, traveling by myself, and uh, this idea of intrinsic versus instrumental value. And so entrenched in, in thought here that I, I missed my exit uh, and end up going ultimately 40 miles out of the way, right? Because I was thinking too hard when I was driving. Uh, but I, I think this really has helped me. To, only God, only God has intrinsic value. Only God. Everything else has instrumental value. You say that's an insult. No, it's not if you listen to what I'm saying. Only God has intrinsic value. Everything else has instrumental value. That's why I can, I can love so many things. That's why I can love my wife, why I can love my grandkids. I remember when I had my first grandkid. You know, I, I, I love that. I, I love that kid. Uh, and before I knew it, here comes another one, and I love that one. And here comes another one, and I love that one. And where's all this love coming from, right? Where's, am, am I loving that one less now because this one is, has, to, has to take from this pool of love? No, no. We love things for what they're worth. I love my truck. I love my truck. Uh, I do. I do. But I love my last truck too. All right? I love the last one I had. But it came a point where the last one stopped 
It stopped serving the instrumental purpose for which I loved it. And I said, my love for you is God, right? And I want to love another truck. And this one's approaching there. I was talking to Sandra yesterday. I think it's time, right? I think it's time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love fountain pens, right? I've got a fountain pen here. I, I love fountain pens. But sometimes this fountain pen begins to leak, and, and I, I feel bad about it. We can love many things, all right, for what they are worth. And as soon as that stops as soon as that stops serving its instrumental purpose, then we, we don't love it anymore. That's okay. Only God. Only God has intrinsic worth. But the problem is, the problem is, I think, so often that people will confuse that and see God as having instrumental worth for whatever they determine has the intrinsic worth. Right? Uh, I'm making perfectly good sense in my own head here. Uh, I hope you're following me. Uh, Psalm 37, is it? Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what is the next part of the verse? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. In my relatively short life, I have heard that verse abused more and more and more. Give God first, you know, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you what you want over here. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then you can get what you want over here. No. The nature of the language, the parallelism, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What is the desire of the heart? It's the Lord. You see, it's the Lord. Not something else out here. Lord, I, okay, I, I give God priority, love God first, now I can kill the deer I want to kill. Or I can, you see. Uh, no. But people then, I say, are doing that and they are using God as an instrument to get what they really want. God will not be used. That's the essence of the third commandment, you know. That we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That's not just talking about cussing. That's talking about manipulating God and using God to accomplish what we want to. No. No. God deserves, because he is who he is, that intrinsic love. So we obey. So it's not a matter of feeling. You know, it's not a matter of how much I feel or am I taking my love away from something else uh, in order to, to, to love God. No, you, you love everything for what they're worth. But only God has intrinsic value and God is not, is not an instrument in anybody's hand to manipulate, to get him to do what we think we want him to do. All right? To love the Lord. So our choice our ultimate choice in our affections and our inclinations of life are to God. It may not be that I feel, you know, I'm sorry for another personal illustration. You know, that, when I first saw Santa, that happened, the little pitter-pat thing. Uh, and I, I must say, in, in the f 53 years that we have known each other now, I have not felt that little pitter-patter every day of life. It had killed me a long time ago, you know, if that, uh, if that happened. no. But the love is there. I can say I love her more now than I did then. Right? Even the, but thankfully, the pitter-patter can still be there. But the, yeah, you get my point, I hope. Right? It's not a matter of feeling. It's not a matter of feeling that we, that God, that God is our ultimate object of affection, our ultimate object of choice. Anything that would interfere, that would distract God, we love him. Right? We, have, we chose God. Because he chose us. We love him because he first loved us. And then we are to do it completely with all of the heart. That's all the inner man. 
the heart is, is not just the emotion. Uh, the heart is the mind, the way I think. The heart is the emotion, the way I feel. The heart is the will, the way I choose. All of my inner being. And in case we miss the implication of loving the Lord with all of our inner being, then we love him with all of our soul. And the word soul there refers to the entirety of man. Uh, all, all, of, all that there is of me, my inside, my outside, uh, is to love the Lord. And if in case you miss that, then we do with all of our strength, all of our energy. A command. A command. A command that is obeyable. A command that is obeyable. Uh, because he first loved us. All right, so we are commanded uh, to love him. But we're commanded to love him, I say completely, but there's a logic for it, because of who he is. We love him because of who he is. Not because of what he does for us, but because of who he is. And there's where the Shema comes into play. Hear, O Israel. Can I translate it just a bit differently here? Hear, O Israel. You see how Lord is spelled here? It's all capitals. That's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant salvific name of God. Hear, O Israel. Jehovah is our God. Jehovah is one. Jehovah is one. This, I say, is the, air, the very essence, the definition of true biblical worship. We are monotheists. We believe in one true and living God. But we believe in that one true and living God in Trinity. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. One God but three persons. Now that defies our understanding. If you can tell me you understand the Trinity, then either you're supernatural yourself or you're lying to me. We can't understand the Trinity. It's beyond our comprehension, but we believe it. We believe it that there is but one true and living God in three persons. Deny that, and if if Athanasian is correct, you can't deny that and expect to be saved. True. This verse, while it is not a proof text, as it were, uh, of the Trinity, I think it is encompasses the idea. Jehovah, here is the covenant name of God. And as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that this term Yahweh or Jehovah applies to the Father, applies to the Son, applies to the Holy Spirit. Different contexts. He is our God. And Yahweh is one. And the word one there, the word one there uh, is elsewhere. Again, there's no analogy, even a biblical analogy that's going to be perfect here. But you remember uh, in, in Ezekiel, for instance, this one, not the only place, but this comes to my mind. In, in Ezekiel 37, after the, after the uh, image, uh, the, the vision of the dry bones, uh, the prophet sees two sticks. He sees two sticks. One stick is Israel, the northern kingdom. The other stick is Judah, the southern kingdom. And they're divided at that time. But he sees then that those two sticks come together as one stick. Right? Two sticks, but now they come together as one stick. 
and one, one. But we know that that one is that which consisted of two parts, right? And that's the word that occurs here. Uh, so I say, I'm not going to use this as a proof text of the Trinity, but I say inherent, I believe, in this statement is the Trinity. Yo, Yahweh, Jehovah is one, a unity, a unity in one. So we love the Lord because of who he is. He is the one true and living God. The one true and living God. And he's our God. And there's the salvation, salvation expressed in the term of Yahweh itself, Jehovah. But it's our got a personal relationship there. And he's also a jealous God. Look at verse 15, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And the jealousy of the Lord. Uh, again, we tend to think of sometimes jealousy as, as, as a vice. We are not to covet, certainly. And we're not to be jealous, certainly. Uh, but there's something about jealousy that is not a vice. I know that because God is jealous, right? And it can't be saying that God is guilty of some vice. It can't mean what it can't mean. I tell my students that on a regular basis when we come to a difficult text. It can't mean what it can't mean. So it can't mean here that God is guilty of coveting. It can't mean that God is guilty of some kind of a vice. No, here's something very positive. The je- God is jealous. He is jealous. He's zealous. He's, he's hot. He is hot for three things. If you look at the scriptural development of, of, of the jealousy of God, he's jealous for his own name. He's jealous for his word. And he's jealous for his people. All right, those three things particularly. God is jealous for, for his own name, that's why he won't tolerate anybody taking his name, his person. His person name is the entirety of the person, right? Not just the appellation or title. God is heat. He's hot for the honor of his own person, for his word and for his people. So he becomes intolerant then. All right, God is intolerant then of that which is contrary to his person, his word, his people. So once we are impressed with who the Lord is, that, that makes it that makes loving him sensible. Here's the logic of loving him because he is who he is, but also because he has done what he has done. And over and again in this text, we have the attention upon redemption, upon God being the savior of his people. We love him because he first loved us. How is that love manifested to us in the giving of his son to be the only redeemer of God's elect? So just read through this chapter and see the number of times. Uh, The exodus uh, is brought to our focus. Verse 12, for instance, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So remember your redemption. Remember the fact that God sent his son in the likeness of our sinful flesh to deal with our sin, to take care of our sin, to cleanse us from our sins. Remember that. And if we remember, if if our minds are fixed and our hearts are focused upon the fact of God's redemptive work for us, how can we not? Yeah, how can we not love him? 
Remember Paul's testimony there in 2 Corinthians 5 as he delineates there the various things that motivated him, sight of eternity, yeah. But then he brings our attention to the fact that Jesus died. He died. The love of Christ, he says, constrains me. The love of Christ hems me in. It hems me in. Arrest me. Because he judges this, that one died for all, then how can we for whom he died live with a view to ourselves? How can we live with our own self-interests? How can we live with our own self-agenda? How can we live if we judge this, that he died for his people? And this is exactly what Moses is doing here in this great chapter. Remember your redemption. You want to love the Lord? Remember the fact that he has loved you. That he has loved you, enabling us then to love in return. We love him because he first loved us, I repeat. But it's based upon that redemptive work. A deliverance by power. A deliverance by blood. A deliverance by grace. Deliverance. Redemption. Enables then and gives the logic for loving the Lord as we ought to love him. But this is not just esoteric stuff. Loving God looks like something. It's going to look like something. And I think on the sheet there, I give you some of the uh, ways that this love is going to show itself. You're going to fear God. If you love the Lord, you'll fear God. I know there are some that would say, well, fear of God was an Old Testament thing. Love of God's a New Testament thing. To which I say, read your Bible. Read your Bible. The New Testament tells me I need to fear God, and the Old Testament tells me I need to love God. The fear of God. The fear of God is living in the awareness of God. In, in essence, what we were addressing in, in the message today was living in the re reality of God. That's what it means to fear God going to involve my worship, my attitude toward God, but it's also going to involve my behavior, my ethics in this world. Job was a man that feared God and he turned from evil. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of an ethical life that pleases the Lord. To fear him. It's an evidence of love. If you could look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, the Lord gives a list here of what he requires. Uh, of his people. Verse 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments, and so forth. You have there five things that the Lord requires. And the fear of God is the very beginning. One of the Hebrew logic is a little different than Western logic, right? We, we tend to think linearly, right? One point, next point, next point, next point. We tend, we tend to think linearly. Hebrew thought was very often chiastic. Yeah, use that word, like an X, like an X, where you have general ideas paralleled with a general idea, but where the intersection is, 
where the intersection is would be the main point. So you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12 there, you have five things. You fear the Lord, and that the concluding one is then to obey the Lord, which sums up the whole thing. Remember Ecclesiastes, what's the whole duty of man? Fear God, keep his commandments, all right? So you have the same idea there. But walk in his ways, swear. What's the intersection? Love. Love. In Western thinking, we'd say, oh, love is in third place. You see, we'd say love is in third place. No. In, in the Hebrew logic, love is at the center, right? It is the core. It's the main idea. It's the main idea. But evidenced by fearing, living in the reality of God, obeying God, you can work through their service and commitment. Time is gone here. That's all in Deuteronomy chapter 6. All right? So let's, let's just live. Let's just live as though God is real. Live as though God is real. It's so easy for us even that have our lives you know, evolving around the church, revolving around the church, that we take it for granted and we just become routine. I, I, I think the, the thing that grieves me most about myself is, is the ease with which you can slip from doing something very spiritual to just, you know, I, I, get, I, I get paid for studying the Bible. Yeah? I get paid for that. That's my job. Uh, what a privilege that is. But how easy it is to go from that just, uh, it's my job. It's my job. And you lose that heart devotion. You lose that heart. So God keep us to live in that reality, no matter what our vocation is, that we'll love him in obedience to the greatest commandment. Our dear Lord, forgive us for not loving Thee as we ought. Forgive us for transgressing this greatest commandment so often. Lord, help us. Help us to love Thee as we ought, to serve Thee as we should, to fear Thee as we must. Speak to us, O Lord. Accept our thanks for this Sabbath day that we can devote to think about the things of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.